0: Chapter eighteen Part two of a Diary from Dixie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Laurianne Walden. A Diary From Dixie by Mary Chestnut. CHAPTER eighteen Columbia, South Carolina, Part two August twenty ninth. I take my hospital duty in the morning. Most persons prefer afternoon, but I dislike to give up my pleasant evenings. So I get up at five o'clock and go down in my carriage all laden with provisions. Mrs. Fisher and old Mr. Bryan generally go with me. Provisions are commonly sent by people to Mrs. Fisher's. I am so glad to be a hospital nurse once more. I had excuses enough, but at heart I felt a coward and a skulker. I think I know how men feel who hire a substitute and shirk the fight. There must be no dodging of duty. It will not do now to send provisions and pay for nurses. Something inside of me kept calling out, "'Go, you shabby creature. "'You can't bear to see what those fine fellows have to bear.' "'Mrs. Izzard was staying with me last night, "'and as I slipped away, I begged Molly to keep everything dead still "'and not let Mrs. Izzard be disturbed until I got home. "'About ten I drove up, and there was a row to wake the dead. "'Molly's eldest daughter, who nurses her baby sister, let the baby fall, "'and regardless of Mrs. Izzard, as I was away, "'Molly was giving the nurse a switching in the yard, "'accompanied by howls and yells worthy of a Comanche. "'The small nurse welcomed my advent, no doubt, "'for in two seconds peace was restored. "'Mrs. Izzard said she sympathized with the baby's mother, "'so I forgave the uproar. "'I have excellent servants, "'no matter for their shortcomings behind my back. "'They save me all thought as to household matters, "'and they are so kind, attentive, and quiet.' They must know what is at hand if Sherman is not hindered from coming here. Freedom, my masters! But these sphinxes give no sign unless it be increased diligence and absolute silence, as certain in their action and as noiseless as a law of nature, at any rate, when we are in the house. That fearful hospital haunts me all day long and is worse at night. So much suffering, such loathsome wounds, such distortion— with stumps of limbs not half cured, exhibited to all. Then, when I was so tired yesterday, Molly was looking more like an enraged lioness than anything else, roaring that her baby's neck was broken, and howling cries of vengeance. The poor little careless nurse's dark face had an ashen tinge of grey terror. She was crouching near the ground like an animal trying to hide, and her mother striking at her as she rolled away. All this was my welcome as I entered the gate. It takes these half-Africans but a moment to go back to their naked, savage, animal nature. Mrs. Izzard is a charming person. She tried so to make me forget it all and rest. September 2nd. The battle has been raging at Atlanta, and our fate hanging in the balance. Footnote. After the battle, Atlanta was taken possession of and partly burned by the Federals. End footnote. Atlanta, indeed, is gone. Well, that agony is over. Like David, when the child was dead, I will get up from my knees, will wash my face and comb my hair. No hope. We will try to have no fear. At the Prestons I found them drawn up in line of battle, every moment looking for the doctor on his way to Richmond. Now, to drown thought, for our day is done, read Dumas' Maitre d'Arme. Russia ought to sympathize with us. We are not as barbarous as this, even if Mrs. Stowe's word be taken. Brutal men with unlimited power are the same all over the world. See Russell's India, Bull Run Russell's. They say General Morgan has been killed. We are hard as stones. We sit unmoved and hear any bad news chance may bring. Are we stupefied? September 19th my pink silk dress i have sold for six hundred dollars to be paid for in installments two hundred a month for three months and i sell my eggs and butter from home for two hundred dollars a month does it not sound well four hundred dollars a month regularly but in what in confederate money a la september twenty-first went with mrs red to hear dr palmer i did not know before how utterly hopeless was our situation this man is so eloquent, it was hard to listen and not give way. Despair was his word, and martyrdom. He offered us nothing more in this world than the martyr's crown. He is not for slavery, he says. He is for freedom, and the freedom to govern our own country as we see fit. He is against foreign interference in our state matters. That is what Mr. Palmer went to war for, it appears. Every day shows that slavery is doomed to the world over. For that he thanked God. He spoke of our agony, and then came the cry, Help us, O God! Vain is the help of man. And so we came away, shaken to the depths. The end has come. No doubt of the fact. Our army has so moved as to uncover Macon and Augusta. We are going to be wiped off the face of the earth. What is there to prevent Sherman taking General Lee in the rear? We have but two armies, and Sherman is between them now." Footnote: During the summer and autumn of 1864, several important battles had occurred. In addition to the engagements by Sherman's army farther south, there had occurred in Virginia the Battle of Cold Harbor in the early part of June, those before Petersburg in the latter part of June, and during July and August, the Battle of Winchester on September 19th, during Sheridan's Shenandoah Campaign and the battle of cedar creek on october nineteenth september twenty fourth these stories of our defeats in the valley fall like blows upon a dead body since atlanta fell i have felt as if all were dead within me forever captain ogden of general chestnut's staff dined here today had ever brigadier with little or no brigade so magnificent a staff the reserves, as somebody said, have been secured only by robbing the cradle and the grave, the men too old, the boys too young. Isaac Hayne, Edward Barnwell, Bacon, Ogden, Richardson, Miles, are the picked men of the agreeable world. October 1st. Mary Canty Preston's wedding day has come and gone, and Mary is Mrs. John Darby now. "'Maggie Howell dressed the bride's hair beautifully,' they said, "'but it was all covered by her veil, which was of blonde lace, "'and the dress tulle and blonde lace, with diamonds and pearls. "'The bride walked up the aisle on her father's arm. "'Mrs. Preston on Dr. Darby's. "'I think it was the handsomest wedding party I ever saw. "'John Darby had brought his wedding uniform home with him from England, "'and it did all honour to his perfect figure. "'I forget the name of his London tailor.' The best, of course. Well, said Isabella, it would be hard for any man to live up to those clothes. Footnote. After the war, Dr. Darby became professor of surgery in the University of the City of New York. He had served as medical director in the Army of the Confederate States, and as professor of anatomy and surgery in the University of South Carolina. Had also served with distinction in European wars. End footnote. And now, to the amazement of us all, Captain Chestnut, Johnny, who knows everything, has rushed into a flirtation with Buck such as never was. He drives her every day, and those wild, runaway, sorrel colts terrify my soul as they go tearing, pitching, and darting from side to side of the street. And my lady enjoys it. When he leaves her, he kisses her hand, bowing so low to do it unseen that we see it all. SATURDAY the President will be with us here in Columbia next Tuesday, so Colonel McLean brings us word. I have begun at once to prepare to receive him in my small house. His apartments have been decorated as well as Confederate stringency would permit. The possibilities were not great, but I did what I could for our Honored Chief. Besides, I like the man. He has been so kind to me, and his wife is one of the few to whom I can never be grateful enough for her generous appreciation and attention. I went out to the gate to greet the President, who met me most cordially. Kissed me, in fact. Custis Lee and Governor Lubbock were at his back. Immediately after breakfast, the Presidential Party arrived a little before daylight. General Chestnut drove off with the President's aides, and Mr. Davis sat out on our piazza. There was nobody with him but myself. Some little boys strolling by called out, Come here and look. There is a man on Mrs. Chestnut's porch who looks just like Jeff Davis on postage stamps. People began to gather at once on the street. Mr. Davis then went in. Mrs. McCord sent a magnificent bouquet. I thought, of course, for the President, but she gave me such a scolding afterward. She did not know he was there. I, in my mistake about the bouquet, thought she knew, and so did not send her word. The President was watching me prepare a mint julep for Custis Lee, when Colonel McLean came to inform us that a great crowd had gathered, and that they were coming to ask the President to speak to them at one o'clock. An immense crowd it was—men, women, and children. The crowd overflowed the house. The President's hand was nearly shaken off. I went to the rear, my head intent on the dinner to be prepared for him, with only a Confederate commissariat. But the patriotic public had come to the rescue. I had been gathering what I could of eatables for a month, and now I found that nearly everybody in Columbia was sending me whatever they had that they thought nice enough for the President's dinner. We had the sixty-year-old Madeira from Mulberry, and the beautiful old China, etc. Mrs. Preston sent a boned turkey stuffed with truffles, stuffed tomatoes, and stuffed peppers. Each made a dish as pretty as it was appetizing a mob of small boys only, came to pay their respects to the President. He seemed to know how to meet that odd delegation. Then the President's party had to go, and we bade them an affectionate farewell. Custis Lee and I had spent much time gossiping on the back porch. While I was concocting dainties for the dessert, he sat on the banister with his cigar in his mouth. He spoke very candidly, telling me many a hard truth for the Confederacy and about the bad time which was at hand. October eighteenth. Ten pleasant days I owe to my sister. Kate has descended upon me unexpectedly from the mountains of Flat Rock. We are true sisters. She understands me without words. And she is the cleverest, sweetest woman I know. So graceful and gracious in manner. So good and unselfish in character. But best of all, she is so agreeable. Any time or place would be charming with Kate for a companion. General Chestnut was in Camden but I could not wait. I gave the beautiful bride, Mrs. Darby, a dinner, which was simply perfection. I was satisfied for once in my life with my own table, and I know pleasanter guests were never seated around any table whatsoever. My house is always crowded. After all, what a number of pleasant people we have been thrown in with by war's catastrophes! I call such society glorious. It is the wind-up, but the old life, as it begins to die, will die royally. General Chestnut came back disheartened. He complains that such a life as I lead gives him no time to think. October 28th. Burton Harrison writes to General Preston that supreme anxiety reigns in Richmond. Oh, for one single port! If the Alabama had had, in the whole wide world, a port to take her prizes to and where she could be refitted, I believe she would have borne us through. Oh, for one single port by which we could get at the outside world and refit our whole confederacy! If we could have hired regiments from Europe, or even have imported ammunition and food for our soldiers! Some days must be dark and dreary. At the Mantua Makers, however, I saw an instance of faith in our future, a bride's paraphernalia, and the radiant bride herself. The bridegroom expectant and elect now, within twenty miles of Chattanooga, and outward bound to face the foe. Saw at the Lawrences not only Lizzie Hamilton, a perfect little beauty, but the very table the first Declaration of Independence was written upon. These Lawrences are grandchildren of Henry Lawrence, of the First Revolution. Alas, we have yet to make good our second Declaration of Independence, Southern Independence, from Yankee meddling and Yankee rule. Hood has written to ask them to send General Chasnut out to command one of his brigades. In whose place? If Albert Sidney Johnson had lived, poor old General Lee has no backing. Stonewall would have saved us from Antietam. Sherman will now catch General Lee by the rear, while Grant holds him by the head, and while Hood and Thomas are performing an Indian war dance on the frontier. Hood means to cut his way to Lee, see if he doesn't. The Yanks have had a struggle for it. More than once we seem to have been too much for them. We have been so near to success, it aches one to think of it. So runs the table talk. Next to our house, which Isabella calls Tilly Tudlam, since Mr. Davis's visit, is a common of green grass and very level, beyond which comes a belt of pine trees. On this open space, within forty paces of us, a regiment of foreign deserters is camped. They have taken the oath of allegiance to our government, and are now being drilled and disciplined into form before being sent to our army. They are mostly Germans, with some Irish, however. Their close proximity keeps me miserable. Traitors once, traitors for ever. Jordan has always been held responsible for all the foolish proclamations, and indeed for whatever Beauregard reported or proclaimed. Now he has left that mighty chief, and lo! Here comes from Beauregard, the silliest and most boastful of his military bulletins. He brags of Shiloh. That was not the way the story was told to us. A letter from Mrs. Davis, who says, "'Thank you a thousand times, my dear friend, for your more than maternal kindness to my dear child.'" That is what she calls her sister, Maggie Howell. As to Mr. Davis, he thinks the best ham, the best Madeira, the best coffee— the best hostess in the world, rendered Columbia delightful to him when he passed through. We are in a sad and anxious state here just now. The dead come in, but the living do not go out so fast. However, we hope all things, and trust in God as the only one able to resolve the opposite state of feeling into a triumphant, happy whole. I had a surprise of an unusually gratifying nature a few days since. I found I could not keep my horses, so I sold them. The next day they were returned to me with a handsome, anonymous note, to the effect that they had been bought by a few friends for me. But I fear I cannot feed them. Strictly between us, things look very anxious here. November 6th. Sally Hampton went to Richmond with the Reverend Mr. Martin. She arrived there on Wednesday. On Thursday her father, Wade Hampton, fought a great battle, but just did not win it. A victory narrowly missed. Darkness supervened, and impenetrable woods prevented that longed-for consummation. Preston Hampton rode recklessly into the hottest fire. His father sent his brother, Wade, to bring him back. Wade saw him reel in the saddle and galloped up to him, General Hampton following. As young Wade reached him, Preston fell from his horse, and the one brother, stooping to raise the other, was himself shot down. Preston recognized his father, but died without speaking a word. Young Wade, though wounded, held his brother's head up. Tom Taylor and others hurried up. The general took his dead son in his arms, kissed him, and handed his body to Tom Taylor and his friends, bade them take care of Wade, and then rode back to his post. At the head of his troops in the thickest of the fray, he directed the fight for the rest of the day. Until night he did not know young Wade's fate, that boy might be dead, too. Now, he says, no son of his must be in his command. When Wade recovers, he must join some other division. The agony of such a day, and the anxiety and the duties of the battlefield, it is all more than a mere man can bear. Another letter from Mrs. Davis. She says, I was dreadfully shocked at Preston Hampton's fate, his untimely fate. I know nothing more touching in history than General Hampton's situation at the supremest moment of his misery, when he sent one son to save the other, and saw both fall, and could not know for some moments whether both were not killed. A thousand dollars have slipped through my fingers already this week. At the commissaries, I spent five hundred today for candles, sugar, and a lamp, etc. Tallow candles are bad enough, but of them there seems to be an end, too. Now we are restricted to smoky terabine lamps. Terabine is a preparation of turpentine. When the chimney of the lamp cracks, as crack it will, we plaster up the piece with paper, thick old letter paper, preferring the highly glazed kind. In the hunt for paper, queer old letters come to light. Sherman, in Atlanta, has left Thomas to take care of Hood. Hood has 30,000 men, Thomas 40,000 and as many more to be had as he wants. He has only to ring the bell and call for them. Grant can get all that he wants, both for himself and for Thomas. All the world is open to them, while we are shut up in a Bastille. We are at sea, and our boat has sprung a leak. November 17th. Although Sherman took Atlanta, he does not mean to stay there, be it heaven or hell. Footnote. General Sherman had started from Chattanooga for his march across Georgia on May 6, 1864. He had won the battles of Dalton, Resaca, and New Hope Church in May, the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain in June, the battles of Peachtree Creek and Atlanta in July, and had formally occupied Atlanta on September second. On November sixteenth, he started his march from Atlanta to the sea, and entered Savannah on December twenty third. Early in 1865, he moved his army northward through the Carolinas, and on April 26, received the surrender of General Joseph E. Johnston. In footnote. Fire and the sword are for us here, that is the word, and now I must begin my Columbia life anew and alone. It will be a short shrift. Captain Ogden came to dinner on Sunday, and in the afternoon asked me to go with him to the Presbyterian Church and hear Mr. Palmer. We went, and I felt very youthful, as the country people say, like a girl and her beau. Ogden took me into a pew, and my husband sat afar off. What a sermon! The preacher stirred my blood. My very flesh crept and tingled. A red-hot glow of patriotism passed through me. Such a sermon must strengthen the hearts and the hands of many people. There was more exhortation to fight and die, Allah Joshua, than meek Christianity. End of chapter 18, part 2.